five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Space Business Podcast, where we investigate all the exciting ways in which people participate in the new space economy by conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, investors, and other members of the space family. I'm Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor in and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist. But I am an alumnus of the International Space University, which is also our partner in the podcast. Here's a short message from them. The International Space University, founded in 1987 in Massachusetts, USA, and now headquartered in Strasbourg, France, is the world's premier international space education institution. It is supported by major space agencies and aerospace organizations, ISU offers the Master of Science in Space Studies program at its central campus in Strasbourg. ISU also conducts the highly acclaimed two-month Space Studies program at different host institutions in locations spanning the globe. And more recently implemented the Executive Space Course, the Southern Hemisphere Space Studies program and Commercial Space program. ISU programs are delivered by over 100 ISU faculty members in concert with invited industry and agency experts from institutions around the world. Since its founding 33 years ago, more than 4,800 students and participants from over 100 countries graduated from ISU. Follow us on social media at ISUNet. Our guest on this episode is Canadian actor Cass Anver. Science fiction fans will know him better by his role in the hit TV series The Expanse where he plays the Martian pilot Alex Kamal. Cass has clearly caught the space bug. He's a regular guest now at space events, such as the Satellite 2020 conference in DC, where I met up with him, as well as the very recent online edition of Yuri's Night. Our conversation touches on such diverse topics as science fiction previewing inventions in real life, the expanse as an example of hard science fiction, his visit to Blue Origin, humankind's relationship with our own planet, the overview effect, and his own plans in space. I think you will find that Cass is a passionate ambassador for space. And I, for one, am very happy to have him in that role. In this way, please enjoy my conversation with Cass. All right, Cass, thanks for doing this. It's my pleasure. We're here at um, Satellite in DC, which is one of the um, largest space trade shows in the world. I know you've been roaming around for a couple of days. Um, you've watched some of the panels. You just watched the um, the annual pitch contest. Yeah. What are some of your impressions? Um, I've been attending these science events <clears throat> probably for the last few years now since I've been doing uh, The Expanse. I get invited to these things now a lot, which I'm extremely grateful for. Um, <clears throat> science has always been something that I've been very passionate about, space exploration as well. And uh, now being able and being made aware of all these events and getting to see the new technology, the new developments, the plans that people have that are, are not just theoretical, but actual hardcore things being designed, implemented, and planned for, money being poured into it. It's quite um, astounding, actually. Uh, it's like the stuff of science fiction that is actually happening that no one knows about except you guys in this, in this field. So, <clears throat> for example, I got to, to witness a, a pitch about this new satellite repair technology called Scout that are these little mini drones that, that get to go and, and observe uh, visually each individual satellite out there and uh, analyze it for damage and, and, and uh, disrepair in order to prevent it from malfunctioning or repair it before uh, it defaults and falls out of orbit or causes damage to another satellite. I thought that was amazing. I saw somebody pitching a product that was a self-deploying space helmet um, that you wear a, a, on a neck ring uh, so that you can literally be flying a spacecraft in one of those very dangerous moments like takeoff or landing where you're supposed to be wearing your helmet with the visor down in order in case something emergency happened but obviously when you're in the helmet it's very restrictive 
Um, you can't see clearly. It, it's suffocating. Um, and so being out of a helmet would be much more advantageous, except if there's an emergency, it takes way too long to put the helmet on. This thing deploys like an airbag. In the case of an emergency, you're instantly contained in a helmet and protected uh, within a split second. Yeah, I, I saw it amazing. And as one of the judges pointed out, probably something that could be very interesting for the uh, US Space Force, or I suppose uh, also for the, uh, the Martian uh, Congressional Navy, <laughs> um, as, uh, as life, as we said, very often life Precursor uh, to the parts. Goliath armor. <laughs> yes, I thought that too. Is, is there anything that you have seen um, on the expanse that you think should exist in real life, like in a similar way that you know we used to have stuff on Star Trek, like um, that look like iPads? Absolutely. Like I was just talking about this to the person who designed this helmet. I was saying that um, we have technology in the expanse that is so realistic. I, I haven't asked the creators, I haven't asked the writers if this particular technology uh, was based on a design, but I find it hard to believe that it was not. They call it a, a blister airlock. And the concept is that when you're working in space and you have all these ships in space that there will come a time where you have to uh, force open a door or you have to cut through the hull to get in, like some kind of <clears throat> emergency situation where you've got to go into a pressurized vehicle or container and you want to preserve the, the atmosphere inside. So how do you do that on the fly? And they've created from their imagination this thing called a blister airlock, which is something that it's like a plastic ring that with a cellophane type membrane, a very tough membrane that deploys um, after you cut through, it, it seals itself to the hull of the ship or the door that you're trying to force open. And then there's a, an acetylene torch or something that cuts through the, the, the metal. And once that door is open, <clears throat> the blister airlock releases oxygen um, to, to self-inflate. And that there's a, a second membrane that you kind of zip your, it's kind of like if you've ever done construction, uh, when there's mold remediation or yeah. construction, they have like a double zipper yeah. thing that you go in, zip the one closed behind you, zip yeah. the thing open. Yeah. It's to preserve the atmosphere in your home so you don't let do mold spores. So this is the same thing, only you're preserving the air in the ship. Yeah. And yeah. it, it uh, independently attaches to whatever surface that you're working on so that you can cut through the ship, the air doesn't vent, yeah. and you can go through the ship uh, in a functional airlock that is made out of membrane. Yeah. I must <coughs> say one of the things that has always impressed me about The Expanse, it is really um, what we call hard science fiction in the sense that they they try to like present solutions like the ones you mentioned, which are which are plausible. Absolutely. Like they don't just pluck something from, from thin air. And also, for example, I guess you are like the use of gravity you have on Mars, on Earth, uh, in the belt, that's also like, it's done in a very realistic way and very yeah. impressive. I suppose you guys must have... I um, mean, that's, that's what happens when your showrunner and, and head producer and writer is a physicist. Understood. You're, you're, you're probably answering my next question. I was gonna, I was gonna ask you whether you guys have expert advisors. Um, yeah, oddly enough, we don't need to hire anyone uh, as a consultant because the three people at the top of the food chain are major science uh, aficionados. One's a PhD physicist and the other two are highly educated and informed science, space travel, uh, space colonization, uh, science gurus. Yeah. Did you have, um, did you have to study and learn a lot for, for this role on the science, on the science side? Um, I came to the table with a lot of knowledge because I'm usually the smartest person in the room when it comes to science in any project. I happen to be now number four or number five <laughs> on the expanse. I am not the smartest guy in the room. Uh, and uh, so I came with a lot of knowledge. And that being said, I learned something every single episode about science. Like I had never known or heard about the Coriolis effect until I did the show season one. I had never known or heard about orbital mechanics yeah. in last season, uh, season four, I had to do a, an episode where we, are, we have to tug with the Rossi has to tug another ship yeah. into a higher orbit. Yeah. My mind, yeah. you pull the ship perpendicular 
to the planet, yeah. uh, straight away from the planet, yeah. in order to achieve a higher orbit. That's just yeah. a logic. And then they're like, no, 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 that's not that's how it work works. Way. <laughs> you just you travel along the orbital path and yeah. just increase your speed. Yeah. And then it's like it it increases the the orbit. And you get further away, and I'm like, that makes no sense whatsoever. Like it's not very practically, yeah. it's not intuitive. Like yeah. I just think fly away from the planet. Yeah. And you go into a higher orbit. Yeah. But then when they explain it to me, well, that's not an orbit. That's that's directly uh, away from the planet. You need so, a lot of power. So you need to actually like just that. increase your velocity, yeah. and that will expand your orbit, and you will then go away from the planet and be further away. Yeah. I just think to remember. I think <clears> it was probably in the in the second season when you had to hide out somewhere. Like you couldn't like put on the motor. You couldn't be seen. Yeah, I was, and I did. Moons, I, and was, did like I was hiding behind uh, Silene. Yeah. And uh, I had to do a slingshot. Uh, Actually, I think a number of slingshots. So that's pure uh, orbital dynamics. Yeah, yeah. And here's a here's a kind of a kudo to the fans and a kudo to our our science team. Um, when you're doing a show like this, uh, there are certain things you have to do just to make it dramatic. There are certain things you have to do to make it interesting and fun to watch. For example, a space battle in absolute silence, which yeah. is what it would be. Yes, would be boring. Like you would have no drama. Agreed. Yes. So they add some sound, and they try to make the sound sound like it's coming from inside the ship. So the logic is, this is what you hear when you're inside the ship right. and it's firing. So yeah. they, they kind of justify it, but you still feel like you're seeing explosions and things like that in space. Um, <clears throat> so dramatically, when they did the, uh, the Silene episode where we did the uh, slingshot back to Ganymede, um, they did a very dramatic kind of spaghetti loop-de-loop -loop down to the yep. planet that um, they got called out on it <clears throat> from some of the highly intuitive fans, the, the, the knowledgeable fans, and said, your your path was way more complicated than it needed to be. <laughs> you could have done it much simpler. And they went, yeah, we know. We just wanted it to look cool. <laughs> they Basically, they, they acknowledged that it, it was not the scientifically most accurate way to get down to the planet. And, uh, but that some things, they just do things just because it's cool. Excellent. And coming back to real life, um, so you said, yeah, you're going to more and more of these events. And I think I saw you had a chance to um, visit Blue Origin as well. With the yeah, cast. the cast got invited that? to Blue Origin. That was really thrilling. Um, I mean, obviously we have a very close tie to Blue Origin because sure. of Jeff Bezos and Amazon, he's the one, he's yeah. the one who loves our show and kind of and brought, really helped bring it back. Yeah. yeah he, br he brought it back, uh, from a, a personal interest as well as the fans. Um, but getting to see the, the ships, I got to sit in the capsule for, uh, one of the new shepherds, uh, or is it the new Glenn? I can't remember. It was the big one. It's um, probably the, um, the new shepherd, the one they're going to fly tourists on. Yeah. That's yeah. what, that's what it was. Shepherd, it's yeah. huge with big, beautiful windows. Yes. It was like being in a, in a tourist attraction. Yes. Um, that was exciting. And I got to see engines and I got to see videotapes of what they're planning and, Uh, and I got to hear a lot about what Jeff's vision was, which I, um, I have to say, uh, personally, I was very much compelled by his motivations, uh, for why he's doing what he's doing in terms of his space colonization direction, his pathway about his basically build the road. Uh, you mean getting people off of the planet, preserving yeah. the planet? Yeah, preserving the planet. Cause, um, I think there's a misconception a lot of people had, including myself was that, Uh, he's trying to just get off the planet because he feels like uh, we have to have a plan B. And in listening to him and listening to his people, uh, it's he wants to preserve plan A. He's not looking for a plan B. He's like, the only solution is preserving this planet. Yes. In order to preserve this planet without stifling our industry and our creativity and our, our development, evolution and growth, we have to get off the planet so that we maintain this blue gem that yes. is our, our blue origin is why, why he called yes. it uh, and get the industry off the planet that's that's killing us. Yeah, get all heavy industry off the planet. Yeah, and, and I think that's a really brilliant way. You can't pollute space. Like, you can only pollute an atmosphere. Yes. <clears throat> If you have no atmosphere to pollute, then you're not polluting, yeah. you know? There's so much stuff, there's so much space in space that you can, you can send stuff into the sun or just send stuff out and it, it's not considered pollution because you'll never see it again. That's correct. I suppose some people are getting worried about like space debris as for sending out little satellites. See, that's, but then, people are working on that. But, <laughs> but here's, here's what I was starting to, this conference actually is making me, you were asking me what I'm learning here. And like, 
I have so many questions now about um, find out about you know what's in orbit and everyone's coming up with these new things and I saw Elon Musk is putting out his um, those what is those eight satellites that he just the Starlink satellites the Starlink satellites and you know I saw photos of um, some of the light pollution that's happening from the reflections he said something yesterday where he said that the the reflections were only caused by the satellites tumbling get, in the tumbling in, in the initial orbital yeah. and Race, now that yeah. once they settle they're not going to and he also talked about um, they're going to be starting to paint their satellites black and put uh, yeah. shields on them to prevent reflections and <clears throat> because the result of these reflections on the astronomers observations is phenomenal like I, I have photos of the streaks, streaks of, of light yeah. of light and it ruins all their observations in those small little windows of the universe and we can't we can't do what we've been doing like like we polluted our oceans we polluted our air we polluted uh, i mean we're surrounded by radioactive radiation and microwaves and yeah. rf waves and like we're constantly just going you know let's just see what happens and it's like i think we have to come up with a better strategy to growth and evolution and expansion we have to, we're, we're smart enough now that we know everything we do is going to have a resonant impact on hum, on human life and well-being and quality of life so we need to anticipate that and try to <clears throat> even though it's maybe a little bit more time consuming maybe a little more expensive but in the long run it's it's a long-term thinking goal and that's another reason why you know I admire Jeff's perspective he's always long term yeah. like he built built this 10,000 year clock just for the hell of saying think long term you yes. know he puts this 10,000 year clock that's cost millions of dollars to carve it into a mountain that's going to be self-sufficient it's going to work off geothermal energy and yes. reset itself by the stars completely mechanical no function other than telling time but it's going to last 10,000 years yes. just to say to future generations think long term plan for the long term don't think don't plan for a 20-year bubble 10 years behind you 10 years in front of you if it doesn't affect my lifetime it's not worth thinking about that concerns me <clears throat> that's, and, I think that's a feature of of humanity, right? And I think another reason I admire the Expanse uh, and the writers of the Expanse is that they're not running away from this type of issues, right? They're not pretending yeah. that this is going to be like a utopia. It's not utopia. It's no. like it's not Star Trek. Expanse, it's not Star Trek, or like at least parts <clears throat> of Star Trek. I guess there's some darker Star Trek series like right, Space right, Nine, right, but right, right. it's not. The, it's not. It's not the generic kind of the Federation has wiped out racism and. Uh, money and healthcare and all that stuff is and now the only things we struggle with is the other races yeah we're fighting only aliens not yeah. at all right in the expanse it's humans which are still quarreling with humans yeah. with the Beltas we're, we're unemployed 70% unemployment on earth we have more people than we have jobs uh, we are fighting for power we're fighting for territory the the empire is trying to hold on to its colonies and is not providing them with independence and is got that claim of ownerships and and we're not respecting the working class and we're exploiting the resources and we're strip mining and we're, we're, you know, we're ravaging. And the terminology that I come up with when I look at how we're behaving now compared to the rest of the natural world, um, <clears throat> in my opinion, we should be operating like a parasite with our planet because a parasite has a symbiotic relationship right. with a host. Yes. Because I don't consider a parasite a, a dirty word. Right. Uh, the parasite gains something from the host, and the host gains something from the parasite. Right. Uh, for example, the bacteria in, in, our, in, in, our, gut, in our guts. Yeah. You know, we nourish the parasite. The, right. the parasite helps us digest. I mean, we could not live without our gut biome. Um, it's a symbiotic relationship. It's healthy. I feel we're behaving like a virus. And a virus is a very unsuccessful organism because it right. kills its host. And the only reason a virus survives, like the only reason the Korea, uh, Corona. coronavirus yes. is surviving right now is because it hops from one organism to another and that's how it evolves. But in the case of my analogy, we only have one organism, which is the planet. Yes. There is no other place for this virus to hop. So once you kill this organism, it dies, you die. It's not a successful organism. Success is, 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 is defined by being able to replicate and survive over the long term. Yeah. So we have to stop behaving like a virus and more like a, like a parasite. Do, do you think we're 
we're destined for a future like it's pictured in the expanse or is there something we can I do I think it's very that? realistic. Uh, I think um, the only way to avoid that, because right now, like I've gone to multiple science conferences and I see every science conference I go to, there's a military yes. uh, representation. There's, a, there's, there's someone there representing the military. <clears throat> and every time I listen to them, incredibly intelligent people, incredibly um, experienced, knowledgeable people, but it's always about, we have to get it before they get it. If we don't do it, they're going to blah, blah, blah. It's such a us and them type of mentality, which, I mean, there is no, like when you experience the overview effect, when you, there is no us and them. Yes. We are one organism. Yes. And we are different components. Every single one of these nations has skills. Everything, yes. they have assets. You know, the Russians have superiority in certain areas. The Chinese have superiority in certain areas. We have superiority in certain areas. Canadians have certain. I'm a Canadian, so I gotta. You, know, you gotta bring it. We up. gotta bring yeah. it up. We got the Canada arm, <laughs> Go and we Canada. got certain, we got certain <laughs> things that we do better. And yeah. that's the strength of the species. Yeah. As soon as you make it into us and them, and then everyone in the in the warriors of our our world are always like, well, yeah, but we can't afford to take that risk. And I'm like, honestly, you can't afford not to take that risk because. Um, if you if you photocopy the behavior that we have now and the relationships we have now, you just transplant that to the moon and you transplant it into space, we're screwed, man. Yes. We're screwed because, you know, there's nothing. Once we get, like, I mean, you guys are going to can't I can't talk too much about future seasons, but once we are out there, it ain't too hard to destroy this planet. Right. It is not a big deal to destroy the planet. It happened in the past. Like, we have an entire history uh, of extinction yes. on this planet. I mean, the, the history happened. of colonialism is not very encouraging, clearly. But even just species, uh, like mass extinction on this planet, yeah. it's doable, yeah. uh, nuclear or otherwise, it's doable. And when you start getting people that are trigger happy and egos and and uh, narcissistic type kind of mindsets of like, uh, I don't care what the cost is, uh, my views are more important than the good and health of the entire planet. Like, we're at a point, uh, I think they call it the Anthropocene era. Um, we are at a point where our species is capable of doing so much damage to the planet that it cannot recover. Right. We have never been in that position in the history of the world. Yeah, the the human race has ne no species has ever been at a point that it can dictate the fate of the planet to the point of no return, and that's brand new. And, it, and we've kind of earned that medal, <laughs> so we have to take that seriously. And, and in fairness, it's I mean, it's what some people float as one potential explanation uh, <clears throat> of the Fermi paradox, right? Fermi paradox is like why haven't we not heard from aliens when there should be like you know billions of races out there? Okay. The explanation being that like well any civilization eventually hits a point like the one you described where self -destruct it can self destruct it. and yeah. maybe they all usually did. it always happens. So um, there's a whole bunch of theory. alien races out there that are Nuke basically uh, <laughs> post-apocalyptic charred worlds, and they're just dead waiting to be discovered by. Uh, Historians. That's well, that's uh, a sad season three of the Expanse. No, <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, parts of season two. That's it, a, a, a dead alien race. Yeah, you're right. Actually, and they've they've uh, they've nuked each other. Right. But uh, not every not both both races aren't annihilated. Only one. Gotcha. But yes, you're right. It seems to be, at least in our universe of the Expanse, that this personality trait of the ends justifying the means and uh, if I'm going down, you're all going down with me, uh, seems to permeate all life uh, in the universe. And um, I honestly don't feel it's necessary. I feel like there's enough intelligence, there's enough spiritual enlightenment in this world. Um, we've learned so much from the spiritualists of this planet. When you go back to Zoroastrian and Hinduism, Buddhism, Christ, Muhammad, Moses, like every single one of these human beings has been preaching for thousands of years a spiritual vision uh doesn't matter who you believe in uh they all preach the same message, fundamental yeah. message of one world one planet 
one species. Yes. And if we ever just allow ourselves to just be present enough to embrace that feeling and get over these paranoid, delusional fears of the other, which yes. is hardwired into our DNA. The other is hardwired into our DNA, but we have evolved above that. We now know that and we can supersede the, that hardwired programming because we are the only species in the world that has imagination. Well, that's not true. There are some very highly evolved that create tools and things like that, but you don't see any of the wild kingdom trying to dominate the planet. They don't eat more than they need. They don't kill more than they need. They don't, they're always in harmony. Yeah. They want to breed, they want to propagate, they want to eat, sleep, and um, and just be at peace and want. Human beings are the only ones who aren't satisfied with that. There's a restlessness in their spirit where they have to keep growing, keep growing, keep growing like a virus. Yes. And I think we have to recognize that tendency and break that behavior Otherwise, we're going to follow the, the destiny of the virus and, and kill our host and die. And that's where something may be helpful that you mentioned before, the so-called overview effect. And you know, for some of the people who are listening to us who may not know what that is, that's um, when the astronauts who've come up, gone up to space, a lot of them have described this, this sensation you have when you see suddenly the Earth for the first time as a whole. No boundaries, no borders. Fragility, yeah. like no boundaries, no border. Everybody's really the same. I guess it's also the same message as that famous quote from Carl Sagan. Uh, the, you know, that really the, the, the tiny blue, pale dude, blue dot picture. Yeah, yeah. And Carl Sagan said something like, well, everybody you ever loved, everybody you ever hated, every war ever fought, everything on this tiny little speck. Mm -hmm. It's this kind of general, uh, I suppose, are you, effect. Are you a, a fan of Dr. Uh, Dr. Seuss? Yes, sure. You, you, you ever read uh, Horton Hears a Who? Not that one, no. Uh, Horton Hears a Who is about a little elephant that hears a sound in the universe, like in the sky, and hears a little voice going, help me, help me. And when he finally looks, he sees a speck of dust uh, floating down and the sound going, help me, help me. And he catches it on a dandelion. And then he looks close at it and he sees a little telescope sticking out of the dust. And he looks through it and he sees an entire world right. inside this speck of dust. And the person who's calling for help is a little who that is calling for help because his world is about to destroy itself. And it's asking for help from this elephant. Yes in his world to help this entire world that's on the speck of dust, which to him was a meaningless speck of dust until he heard the call. And it's a phenomenal allegory for, yep. and this was written decades and decades ago. It's like a phenomenal allegory about self-importance and perspective <clears throat> about don't take yourself so seriously. Do not think you are the be all and end all work, harmonize, and allow yourself to just be present and in the moment because no matter how important and big and significant you think you are, you really aren't. We are just a speck of dust. We are just a little blue marble in this vast cosmos and we are scuffling and fighting over ones and zeros yes. uh, in the data stream and, 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 and bits of rock. Yes, uh, yes, yes. And we could just live such a, a, a much more peaceful and, and, and fulfilling life if we eliminate the other this concept of the other yes overcome the overcome the ego and uh, I suppose the, the what they call the illusion of duality and so on the overview effect is that something you want to experience for yourself oh absolutely time? I would you love want to go that. up with Blue Origin or somebody oh, else oh I would love that if if uh, if my boss lets me go I'm going uh, I want to be on the first uh, maybe not the first ship <laughs> but I want to be I want to be one of the first people up there um, uh, one of the interesting things about being on The Expanse, uh, I, I've always considered myself a huge science fiction fan and a space travel lover. And in my mind, I always wanted to travel <clears throat> wherever, wherever they were taking me. I would go to Mars. I would go to the moon. But after being on the show, I'm realizing how absolutely unbearably hard mm -hmm. space is. That's the joke in the writing room. Space is hard. And it's trying to kill you 24 hours a day, seven days a week with radiation, with gravity, with um, asphyxiation, epoxia, with all the dysfunction that happens to your body without, yes. with lack of gravity, distance and time, you just, just age, just travel time. It's just everything about space and space travel is an obstacle that's trying to kill you. 
and you're either too hot or you're too cold or you're, you're, you're going to be bombarded with radiation and you die from massive cancer tumor growth. Uh, so that kind of discouraged me from going to Mars. Um, so I won't get to see my, my backyard and, and my, my family. But, um, <clears throat> but I'd go to the moon. Yeah, I'd go to the moon. You can you can come back in like a few days. Yeah, it's a few days travel. Uh, It'll I can prepare myself physically, and I get to experience something that is you know mind shattering and and spiritual and and world changing. Um, Regarding the overview effect, I kind of have a theory about humanity. I feel like every culture in the world, every religion in the world, has this some version of the creator and that the creator created humanity in its image and you know in, in certain kind of modern contexts we take that literally and we say uh, oh the creator made man humanity in its image physically like uh, and uh, <clears throat> and I don't know if I, I take it that literally when it says uh, it created him in, in his image I honestly feel like I observe patterns in, in the world. That's something I, I, I see myself as a bit of a generalist. I'm not an expert in anything other than my own field as an actor, but I do know a lot about a lot of different things and I, and I, I notice patterns. Uh, and uh, I see all these patterns and all these repetitive things that are happening. Like, like everything in the universe revolves around this model that goes down to the mac- microscopic up to the, the, the largest things that we know where it comes from a atoms the, the the model we have for the atom with a nucleus and, mm-hmm. and orbiting electrons to the to the, the cell that is made out of these atoms or the molecules that are made out of these atoms the cell that is made out with a with a nucleus mm-hmm. and <clears throat> orbiting mm-hmm. uh, organelles and and uh, mitochondria like and then you have an organism that's made out of all these cells and it has mm-hmm. a brain mm-hmm. and it has organisms then you have a family unit made out of multiple mm-hmm. organisms and there's always a leader an alpha in that mm-hmm. and then you have a community yeah. which has a leader and mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. Uh, you have a city you have and in the city there's a brain and there's a city hall mm-hmm. and then you have transportation and you have sanitation and you have all the f- like every la- and then you go up to the planet which is revolving around a sun with its other and and then the sun is in a galaxy and it's orbiting around the black hole and these galaxies are orbit and it just goes on and on and on and on and on like the pattern is never ending it's, it's what we call a, a like a, fr- a fractal, fractal exactly type arrangement. exactly and and i don't see that as coincidence i see that as part of the equation that we haven't figured out yet right. and i see behavior i see for example how come we are so obsessed with artificial intelligence we're obsessed to create a machine that can function at a fraction of our own mind's capacity. Obviously, it's capable of computing things way faster and way more efficiently than we are, but the thought process of, of complex human thinking, of, of strategy, of, of uh, <clears throat> watching human behavior, analyzing human behavior, of, of anticipation. Machines, we're, we're obsessed with trying to create an artificial life form. Yes. And even to the point where we're fascinated when these developers put a human skin on them. Yes. And create a face and a mouth that moves with a voice coming out of it. And the more close to humanity it comes, the more fascinated we become. Are we not creating something in our image? Uh, are we not trying, like, why absolutely. are why are we obsessed with this? A- absolutely, and the distinctions become very difficult, and, right? Because and, and, I could and, look at the human and say, like, well, the human, maybe we are already a machine, right? Just we're so used to thinking as machines as, like, silicon and metal. Exactly. But maybe there was, like, another creator, and this it is, shows, like, a carbon-based chemistry. This is what I'm saying, is that if the creator created us in his image, he included, or she included, or it included all of its own thoughts and essences and struggles and and we're creating artificial life now just like he created something and we're doing it to try and solve our problems we're doing this ai so that it can solve problems we can't solve maybe we are a giant experiment that has been created to solve it's maybe this is from a race that is long extinct that created us because it self-destructed and killed itself and then it created this as a fingers crossed kind of experiment to try and see if maybe my experiment and of humanity can help us uh, figure out our self-destructive behavior, and let's see if and and we're not doing so good. Um, and I think that the overview effect 
is hardwired into every uh, human being because it's somehow there already. We already, and then when we finally get to see it, it opens these gateways and this, it triggers something that is almost genetically part of who we are. Uh, in the same way that um, if you throw a ball to a dog, it catches it. Yeah. It calculates. It calculates a very complicated uh, derivative function, a mathematical function, instantaneously, as fast if not faster to a computer. And you can throw all sorts of variables at him. You can you can get him running. You can throw the ball in the air, and he can catch it in midair. A computer would would be very challenged to make that calculation, to spontaneously know the velocity, the vector. The, the, the gravitational yep. forces, and then catch that ball in midair, in mid-flight, while it's yes. launching itself. And yet a dog can do that, and it hasn't been trained, it, hasn't, it doesn't know math, yes. and yet it does. Mathematics is hardwired into everybody's brains and on a genetic level, on an instinctive level. And so I think this language of creativity or whatever it was is a mathematically-based language that it, is, it permeates every molecule in the, solar system, in the, in the universe. And so I think the overview effect is kind of part of that world where we're seeing something that we all intuitively know, but have not accessed. And then when it's shown to us, it overwhelms us. So in order for humanity to benefit a lot from things like the overview effect, you know, it, it would be desirable to get as many people up there as possible. Absolutely. Because sort of like Jeff, Jeff Bezos' vision. Especially those who are influenceable and who have power and authority and the means to make changes. Absolutely. How do you, um, I mean, how do you think people should, because the wider public, I mean, we're at a very specialized, very geeky space conference, right? But this is not the wider public here, obviously. Right. How do you think the wider public should involve themselves in space? How can they involve themselves in space? How do you personally, how do you want to It's a, It's a great question because um, I don't know how realistic it is. Uh, like, it's not going to happen in, in our lifetimes, but... I love the idea that Blue Origin and, and SpaceX and Virgin are trying to commercialize space tourism. Space tourism. Yeah. I love hearing that the Hilton is trying to find a spot on the moon to create a hotel. Um, because when you normalize space travel and you normalize the, and you make it affordable to be able to get out there and see the planet, it's going to be impossible for us to maintain this concept of borders and boundaries. If you can't see it, it eventually will stop to exist. It's just, the, I mean, it, it, it's happened over history where <clears throat> when, you, when you remove segregation, when you remove boundaries, when you remove things that have been entrenched in our minds and you just remove them from our, our vision, we just get used to this and we, humans are incredibly adaptable. I mean, if you look at people who have been put into concentration camps and like the survival skills that people have emotionally, they can survive the most brutal and yeah. un unbelievable circumstances. So they're incredibly adaptable. Yes. That's why we've survived. Our brains are incredibly adaptable. So we will adapt to a new paradigm, which does not include nationalism and, and otherism and the paranoid kind of defensism. Once we are exposed to um, experiences that, that exclude that, from our from our observation yeah yeah that, that's then getting back to a more optimist message which uh than the one that we started on in the expanse <clears> where um <throat> there's a lot of quarreling still going on so let's mm -hmm. hope that the overview effect and the space well here's travel. here's the thing this is what's going to happen and this is my fear uh humanity is like they're like <laughs> adolescents they're kids and if some great crisis were to impact the, the world, whether it be a natural disaster or an environmental disaster or some kind of technological disaster or a, an alien invasion or some natural phenomenon, some phenomenon, some extinction level event, you can be guaranteed every nation in the world would unite, combine their efforts and try to save the species because our survival instinct is stronger than our ego right. as, a, as a species. Right now, we have no necessity to save the species because we're all doing great. So now we've, we've kind of reduced our DEFCON down to not saving the species, but save my country, 
save my borders. So we put all of our defensive, aggressive energy into hating the other. But if that other becomes an asteroid, that's yes. gonna that's gonna impact or um, a natural disaster that we get warning of, or a proto molecule, or something <laughs> foreign that we don't understand that is threatening the entire life of the planet. I guarantee you, our 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 defense perimeter is going to expand beyond our our oneness, our one our 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 selfness into our oneness, and we will unite. If we're capable of that, why do we have to wait? Why do we have to wait until we're on the verge of death? Why can't we say, oh, you know what? We would unite to save ourselves. Let's do it now while we're healthy and we're strong and we still have our electrical network around the, and we still have our computing power because you guaranteed the first thing that's gonna fall is, is our, our, our electricity, our grid. As soon as we get into a nuclear winter type of situation, eventually we're not gonna have electricity. And then all our computing power, all our finances, all our money, everything's going to be wiped out. All of modern life is, would be instantly. We're gone. so dependent on it. So right now we're healthy, we're strong, we're we're capable of incredible things. Why don't we effectuate the change now? Why don't we set up a instead of a missile defense system that's to blow each other up, set up a missile defense system that's to take care of these asteroids that are eventually going to hit us. Um, we've we had something pass by, I think, in the last few years that was within. Uh, I mean, I think we frequently have asteroids that pass um, uh, within the um, orbit of the moon, which mm -hmm. is pretty damn close. Yeah, and it was, and they're big enough to 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 create a major major catastrophe. But we're not equipped to to uh, break those up and and deviate them yet. We should be. Uh, if we have a massive earthquake or if, or if our climate changes to the point where we drop our global temperature one or two degrees and we lose. Um, our our polar caps and our water levels rise and we lose a lot of land mass and our, our entire biosphere changes and we, we lose fish and we lose our ability to survive in the way like why do we have to wait for that we know it's coming why are our leaders like putting blinders on being willfully ignorant like I watched this documentary that Alicia Vikander um, narrated called Anthropocene stunningly beautifully done and devastatingly terrifying. Uh, it was about a two-year documentary covering different um, <clears throat> parts of the planet, time-lapse. And it showed the South American rainforests just diminishing, 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 like 70% mm. on camera. Uh, it showed the polar ice caps reducing 40% on camera. It showed a coral reef beautiful coral reef colors and life and then bleached. over the course of a year bleached yeah. into white not a thing alive on that same coral reef and it wasn't a projection it wasn't cgi it wasn't special effects it was actual film footage that they did and they watched as our earth died in front of them over a two-year period and it shook me and uh that's when i kind of decided After seeing that movie, I said, I need to put my, my energy, my effort, my voice uh, at being on the show and the, the exposure it allows me to have. I need to find a way to save the world. And that's why I started coming to these conferences to educate myself because I don't know enough. And I love, I've been to a robotics conference, I've been to this satellite conference, I've been to um, the Mars conference uh, in Palm Springs that. Uh, Blue Origin hosts, I've been to the ISTC, I've been to so many of these things, and each one of these things I learn new things and I absorb and, and everyone's in their on their path. Everyone has their unique kind of specialization. And I'm kind of indulging in being able to see and cherry pick and just see the the big picture of what's going on and how important it is this work that's being done, because the work that's being done right now can save the world. Right. That's kind of the the end game that I'm seeing. If there's Some, but this nucleus that we talked about, if there is a brain that guides all the limbs on a common purpose. Yes. And right now it's like um, an octopus that's got all eight limbs disconnected and they're flailing in eight different directions with no guidance. Yes, and I think it's, it's fantastic. And again, thanks for being here that you're one of these people having the influence um, that you help to get this message out about space and how it can be important for, for humanity. Um, trying, I'm trying. I'm still, I'm still looking for my, for my 
my specific path on specific how role in, in on, on how to do this. Yeah, because I'm like I said, I'm a I'm a master of uh, or I'm a I'm a jack of all trades, master of none when it comes to this world. I know a lot about a lot of different things, but I haven't found my my kind of laser beam place where my voice can actually effectuate real fundamental noticeable change and that's what I'm looking for um, yeah save the world that's my mission cool. um, changing tack a little bit we always finish up these interviews um, asking about um, science fiction yes and I know you said you were a huge, huge. huge fan I think since childhood of Absolutely. science fiction um, what are your favorites Star Trek or Star Wars uh, I think if I'm going to have to choose it would be Star Trek simply because um, Star Wars is, a, is an epic fantasy and it has some pretty good themes it has some good messages to it I think they're a little bit <clears throat> subverted uh, amongst all the spectacle. Whereas Star Trek uh, has some very, very, very powerful messages, human messages. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I was talking about today in terms of oneness and global humanization and, and the kind of the unity of mankind, um, it takes that and extrapolates it to the unity of, of living kind. And it does all sorts of stories to show us the hypocrisy of our belief systems. I still remember a, an episode of the original Star Trek where they, they saw this ship that was about to blow up and they scanned it and there was two um, uh, living organisms on side, inside that were fighting each other. They were killing each other and the ship's about to explode. So they beam the two people out into their, the Enterprise. And when they appear, the people that they saved are at each other's throats trying to kill each other and they're half black half white uh creatures they're a race that is half black half white mm -hmm. like black and white and they're at each other's throats trying to kill each other and so they separate them they put them in the jail and they're 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 yelling and screaming there's hatred in their eyes and they're talking about <clears throat> who are you guys what are you why are you trying to kill each other and one of them was a a law enforcement official a police bounty hunter that was chasing a criminal a quote-unquote criminal, a terrorist, and the other person says that he is a freedom fighter uh, trying to defend his people against the oppressors. Um, so you have these two very different perspectives of who they are, and then they talk with such disgust about each other. And finally, Mr. Spock, who's absolute logical, kind of like pragmatic person, yeah. he looks at the two of them and he goes, forgive me for asking this question, but you talk about each other as if you're so different, and yet I look at you and I don't see, like, why, why do you hate each other? You're identical. And they both react with such disdain and contempt and they're so offended. Yeah. And the, the oppressive one says, how dare you compare me to him? Can't you see? Mm -hmm. And everyone's eyebrows go up and he goes, he's black on the left side and white on the right side. Mm -hmm. I'm black on the right side and white on the left side. How dare you? And you see Mr. Spock raise his eyebrow and you see Captain Kirk kind of go, what the fuck? <laughs> and, uh, and it's just such a, it's such a simple story, but the beauty of science fiction is they can make allegories yeah. with all this crazy kind of reality that doesn't really exist. And they can force people who might have these very ignorant opinions to look at something, get emotionally invested, and then suddenly realize yeah. they too have these prejudices. Even though they're ridiculing these two aliens that are fighting over nothing, mm -hmm. they do it themselves. And then it, it forces you to look into a mirror in a way that traditional stuff can't do because it's a little more finger pointing. Science yeah. fiction does it in a way that doesn't point fingers and it forces you to do the work yourself. And I love that. That's a very good point. Which one of the Star Trek's is your favorite of the, uh, the, the series? Um, the original series, I love the messages. Um, never get tired of it. Uh, my favorite dramatically is Next Generation. Okay. Picard is just, Patrick Stewart is just a phenomenal actor. You're a Shakespearean and actor as well, I think. Right? I am. Yeah, yeah, and I, I admire him. I mean, I, I ran my own Shakespeare company for over a decade, and I, I'm trained classically, and uh, Shakespeare is my passion. So, the amount of Shakespeare that they integrated into the Next Generation, probably because of Patrick Stewart. I, I think he probably asked for all that Shakespearean stuff to be put in there, and they, they, they just ran with it. Um, my showrunner, Narain Shankar, who is the, the head kind of boss on our show, was the writer on Next Generation. Okay. Uh, so I found the storytelling and the writing and the scripts in Next Generation to be the strongest of all of them. Mm -hmm. 
um, and it blended the original kind of spiritual message telling of Gene Roddenberry's original Star Trek with a, a dramatic, um, powerful kind of entertaining storytelling with some brilliant acting, brilliant actors. It was a nice blend for me uh, that some of the others didn't have as well. I love them all. Uh, Discovery I'm fine with. Uh, the movies I'm fine with, but I, I found that the next generation kind of had that magic Cool. Any, any other serious movies, uh, science fiction books that you really love and why? Um, I'm very, very, very uh, affected by Blade Runner, uh, Alien, um, The Matrix. Oh, sure. Uh, oh, The Matrix. Do, do you believe you might live in a simulation? I mean, it changed, it really messed with my mind. Like, like the stuff that it talks about was so powerful. Um, I, I still, uh, the first movie, the second and third movie didn't yeah, have the same, uh, didn't have the same kind of depth to it. <laughs> Uh, but the first movie, really, the, the cinematography that they invented, the special effects, and the commitment, the emotional commitment of the actors and the storytelling, it really messed with my mind and it still affects me to this day of trying to make myself be present and aware and not fall into this um, ability we all have of just becoming part of this this flow and not and not resisting this this current of this river and just losing our identity, losing ourselves and just becoming complacent. It's yes. so easy to become complacent in this modern world. And that really kind of woke me up. I must, I must say the Matrix almost, I sometimes call it spiritual fiction because I think there's a lot of these messages we discussed before, like non-duality. I agree. Sense, and and good science fiction writing usually has that in there, like the Asimovs and the Bradburys and the Heinleins and have the spiritual uh, element as well. I guess Battlestar Galactica as well has a yeah. strong spiritual Yeah, Battlestar, I'm a big fan of Battlestar. Even the old one, even the original series. In had, the 70s? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> as hokey and as goofy as it was. The terrible special effects. <laughs> it still, it had the, the core, the heart and soul of it was strong. Cool. Excellent. Um, Cass, again, thanks so much. I brought you a little present. What you um, got? Last year I bought get? a bunch of these t-shirts from You got me goodies? Older. So oh, get, get your ass to Mars! Oh, who's who's that? Who says that? Um, this is uh, it's from Buzz. Buzz Aldrin. Oh yeah, that's right. It's Buzz. I love this. Thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. I'm gonna wear that today. And hope to see you at the next convention. I will. I love this. Get your ass to Mars. That's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting the podcast at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or are interested in being a sponsor, or really anything else, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. That's it. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.